of Acts, if you're new to Trace Crossing, we, our, our normal practice of preaching is to preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. This, this helps us preach and teach the whole counsel of God. It, it removes the excuse we have to avoid passages that we don't like to go to. So we are trying to give you, over the course of many years, the whole counsel of God. And we've been walking through the book of Acts um, for about a year now, off and on. We've been taking it in, in sections. We divided the book of Acts into four different units. And so we're in this last unit. We have four sermons left in this series. I'm going to preach a part of Acts 26 this week, the next part of Acts 26 next week, and then uh, one of our elders um, on the week that I'm out of town, and Avery will just have been coming back into town, Corey Smith is actually going to be preaching Acts 27 um, on March 13th. So that that will be exciting. Uh, Make sure that you're here for that. And then we'll finish Acts the following week. Um, as I'll uh, close out our time in Acts 28. But here we are in Acts 26. In Acts 26, um, Paul is still um, enduring this series of trials. Now, he's not technically or officially on trial here in Acts 26, but he is giving a speech. He's addressing the Roman authority figures um, in the region. He's, he's addressing uh, Festus, who is the Roman governor, and he's addressing what we have here, King Agrippa, or Herod Agrippa, um, who, who also has authority in the Judean region. Um, Paul is in Roman custody. If you remember when he first went into uh, the city of Jerusalem, he, he went to the temple, and he was uh, ambushed by a lot of Jews, and they tried to kill him, and he was spared by the Romans. He was put on trial. He was put before the Sanhedrin. Um, this, this defense that Paul is making here, even though it is an informal defense, is the third time he is making a defense of his life before a Roman official. It's the third time. This is, uh, um, you know, an informal, unofficial trial, but he is defending his life. And he has been accused of attacking uh, Judaism, basically. He's been um, accused of profaning the temple. He's been accused of sedition, which is a serious Roman crime that, that could, could demand his life. Um, and uh, what, what Festus, the Roman governor of the region, has uh, after listening to Paul and examining the, the accusations, what he has concluded is that there is no evidence whatsoever to these claims. So there's no evidence. It, it reminds you a lot of Jesus whenever he's on his trials. It's like all these people who are in authority, they keep looking at Jesus and they keep listening to the accusations and they're like, there's nothing here. This man has done no wrong. He is innocent and yet he remains in custody. The same is true for Paul. He remains in custody even though those who have the power to free him set him free agree that he has done nothing wrong. So once again, Paul is making a defense. Something that is also really interesting in our passage today is Paul tells his conversion story. Now this will be the second time in the book of Acts that Paul himself tells his conversion story. This is the third time in the book of Acts that we have his conversion recorded for us. And it's really interesting. Anytime something's repeated multiple times in um, a New Testament letter or any book of the Bible, it's worth our attention. And what's most interesting about this conversion story is Paul adds details that are not given in the previous two. And, And one of them in particular I'm going to highlight. But essentially, through this defense, 
Paul is weaving together a defense of his life. He wants it to be clear to everyone. It is nonsense that I would attack the Jews. And he does that by saying, hey, I used to be a Pharisee. Not only that, I used to be so on board with the persecution of Christians that I would persecute them myself. And I was, uh, I was a voting member and was, was ecstatic if we were going to put a Christian to death. And I would ground Christians up into synagogues and force them to blaspheme their Jesus, to renounce their faith. I was on board with this whole thing, and then something happened to me. And so what Paul does here is he's defending his life. He weaves together his conversion story and his relationship to what God has done in the world through Jesus. To not only defend his, his life and his actions, but to defend Christianity itself. In this confession or in conversion story, we have the mere essence of Christianity. And what I've, what I've found is that we are really good at complicating our faith. We're really good at complicating Christianity. This is actually really simple, and we're the ones who complicate it. So, for example, we, we complicate how we grow in Jesus, and we take something like, like an ordinary spiritual discipline like reading the Bible. That sounds really simple, right? Oh, no, no, not for us Christians. No, no, no. No, we, we can't just open our Bibles and set, a, set aside a time every single day and open it and read. No, how could we do that? No, I don't understand what I'm reading. So I need to make sure I set aside time to study and maybe I could get a commentary. And so we bring it out and we start studying and then we realize I don't have time. I only have 10 minutes in the morning so I can't study. And then you end up not reading at all. Um, or, or think about prayer. We do the same thing with prayer. Pray. That's simple, Right? You just set aside time, you address the Lord in prayer, you bring your needs before him, you praise him for who he is, you confess your sins, and you, you could just set aside time to do that. Oh, no, 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 you can't do that. It has to be really, really spiritual, and you have to set aside specific time, and I just don't have that much time, and we make an ordinary, simple spiritual discipline really complicated. Or think about sharing the gospel with someone else. Oh, boy, do we complicate that one, you know? There can even be, we talked about last week, just a door that is wide open to you. Someone could even ask you, you know, hey, you go to church every week. Why do you do that? And you just start sweating, you know? And you're like, oh, my, what am I going to say? What am I, I going to do here? Or there's a conversation about something spiritual. Or there's a conversation about something about God. And you could very easily point to the person of Jesus, what he did in his life and, and what his death and what his resurrection actually means and why you follow him. You have all these opportunities. Oh, but no, we make it so complicated. I want to simplify things for us this morning by listening to Paul tell his conversion story. Do you know what Christianity is? The essence of Christianity, the beauty of its simplicity is that God has acted by his grace in the fullness of time to save sinners through one event with two parts, the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's it, right? That's Christianity, that God has acted. It's, the, it's news. Christianity is news, it's not, it's, while there is theology associated with it, while there is philosophy associated with it, and, and while there's a lot of study that goes on and we learn and we grow over the years, the mere essence of Christianity is that in the fullness of time in history, God acted. He did something by his grace in sending his son to die on a cross, to bear the penalty for our sins, and then 
to be raised from the dead. And then through that, God's work, it's a work we will call a work of new creation. It's language that Paul uses throughout his letters. It's a work of new creation where he's recreating a people in his name of which Christ is the head and of which Christ is the firstborn. And so through the resurrection of Jesus, God has begun a new work that is continued to this day. That's the essence of Christianity, something that God has done. Okay? And then here's where we come in. Where we come in, Paul tells two sides of it. We have a relationship to this new work of God in the world. We have a relationship to it, and it will look one of two ways. There are two ways that we can respond to this new work of God through the person of Jesus. Two ways. We can either resist what God is doing through Jesus, or we can embrace and submit to what God is doing through Jesus. And that's it. That's the story of the world. That is the most important thing that you have to consider this morning. Before you leave here, you need to make sure you have this straight. What has God done in the person of Jesus? And how are you responding to it? That's what we're going to do. So I want to show you two things. First, in Acts 26, I want to show you the new work of God in Christ. What did he do? We're going to look at that and how do we benefit from it. And then second, I want to show you the two ways that we can and do respond to this work. Okay, first, the new work of God through Jesus. Let's look at Acts 26 and get our bearings. Let's, let's start in verse 1. I'm going to read. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. So before we go any further, the reason Paul is speaking to Agrippa is because Agrippa is very familiar with Jewish religion, customs, and culture. The Roman governor, Festus, is not. And Festus is responsible for writing a letter to Caesar because Paul has appealed his case to Rome. He has appealed his case to Caesar, and so he is going to be on his way to Caesar. That's where he wants to be tried. And so Festus is confused. He's the Roman governor, and he's so confused because he doesn't see anything that Paul has done wrong, and yet these Jews want him dead, and he doesn't really understand. He, he, we, last week we looked at the fact that as he uh, examined the situation, he said, this is all about a theological disagreement. Paul is preaching the resurrection of Jesus, and that's all he's guilty of, which was an amazing observation for a pagan to make. But he's confused on what to write. And so here, Agrippa comes in, and he's like, oh, thank you so much for being here. Can you please hear Paul out and listen to him so that I can have a better understanding of what's going on? And so Agrippa gives Paul permission to speak, and here Paul goes. He says in verse 2, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with, with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Um, so if you remember uh, uh, the lawyer of the high priest, whenever he was, was originally addressing Felix, he was like, you know, he, he also had some flattery in what he, what, as he addressed him. He said, listen, I want you to listen to me. I'm not going to be long. Paul does not promise that. <laughs> he, says, he says, listen to me patiently. Maybe I should start every sermon like that. You know, would you hear me patiently? Um, but but he, he goes on. He says in verse 4, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. 
And now I stand on trial because of my hope in the promise made to God, made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Paul's trying to point out some hypocrisy and irony in the situation. He's saying, I'm doing what we all as Jews, good Jews, should have been doing the whole time. I am actually on trial for hoping in the resurrection, which is a Jewish hope. You see, the problem wasn't Paul's hope in the resurrection. The problem was that Paul's hope in the resurrection rested on one man who he was preaching was the true and long-awaited Messiah, Jesus Christ. And that was their, their true issue. Okay, so he goes on. Um, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the, the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. In raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. What Paul's trying to do here is he's, he's defending himself in the sense of, I was a faithful Jew, and I was a faithful Jew who was, who was following what we believed to be right. We were persecuting these blasphemers. They were claiming that Jesus was the Messiah, and we knew that he wasn't. I want you to, to go to the end of, of Paul's speech and, and look with me at verse 22. In verse 22, this is how he wraps it up. He says, To this day, I've had the help that comes from God, so I stand here testifying, both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles you see this new work of God is what Paul is proclaiming here there's a new work a new work that is consistent with the old work, a new work that is not incongruous with what God has done in the past. It is actually a fulfillment of what God has been doing all along, but it is a new work, and it has come through the person of Jesus. He says the new work of God is the salvation of both Jews and Gentiles through the death and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah. And the resurrection, Paul sees is confirmation and the beginning of this new work. So Paul is not motivated to attack the Jewish faith, but rather he wants to show that all of the promises that God made to Israel are fulfilled in this man, in Jesus, who is the long-awaited Messiah. And so one thing Paul is wanting to make abundantly clear, and we cannot miss this, and in this culture that we live in, it is so easy to miss because living here in the South, we live in a Christianized secular culture. It's a Christianized secular culture. So it is so easy for us to blend and have the lines blurred on what Christianity actually is. It's so easy for us to get confused. Salvation is found in Jesus alone. In Jesus alone. And Paul says it at the very end of his speech. He says, listen, I'm not saying anything that hasn't been foretold by Moses and the prophets. I'm not teaching something that is completely new. It's not some new age, weird, spiritual thing that I'm bringing to the table. And this isn't some new religious, you know, sect within Judaism. No, God has acted in history to fulfill all of his promises in the past. He has acted through the death and resurrection of Jesus to save sinners, both Jew and Gentile. 
Salvation comes only through Jesus. Look what he says. This is the heart of his message in verse 23. That the Christ must suffer. And that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Salvation is found in Jesus alone. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus has created a new humanity, a new people of which he is the firstborn, of which he is the head. Through his work on our behalf, all who trust in Jesus, whether Jew or Gentile, become part of this new people and receive specific benefits. And so here's what this means. The work of Jesus in his death and in his resurrection is both experienced by us and seen in us. There are specific benefits, there are specific markers and characteristics that come along with this new work. As Jesus died on the cross, there isn't just some spiritual exchange that happens as if now, you know, the Lord is able to look down on everyone who believes in him and he's like, okay, all these people are good, all these people are not. No, there are tangible changes that occur within the people who are united to Jesus. A new work, a new creation has happened so that everyone who comes to faith in Jesus is made new, and it shows up. And there are specific benefits here. I want you to look with me toward the middle of his speech here, starting in verse 16. He's he's telling of his conversion. And we need to look at a few of these these benefits. What do we receive when we come to Jesus? Let's let's look at them. So in verse 16, this this is Jesus um, who, is, who is addressing Paul. Paul's uh, retelling the story. He says, But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, and here we go, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, I want you to notice what Paul was called to preach everywhere the gospel went. Wherever he went, and told the story of what Jesus did, you know, everything that you've seen in me. So he goes and he tells the story, Jesus died and he rose again. Jesus died and he rose again. This is what came along with that. When you believe in Jesus, these are the things that you receive. A new identity, repentance, deliverance, forgiveness, and acceptance. Okay, so first, when you come to Jesus part of this new creation work, this, as God has acted, what do we receive? How do we see that work in us when we come to faith in Jesus? We receive a new identity. Paul was a, he was not only not believing in Jesus, he was killing people who did believe in Jesus. He was attacking people who did believe in Jesus. He was trying to get them to renounce their faith. And when he meets the risen Jesus and he comes to faith in him, immediately, what does Jesus tell him? He says, get up, because now you are my witness and my servant. From the moment he meets Jesus, Paul overnight goes from being a persecutor of Christians to a preacher of Christ. He goes from being a, a, someone who would murder or, or arrest Christians to someone who is a witness to and servant of Jesus. When we come to faith in Jesus, we have an identity change. 
We are changed. We become something new. Our lives are now centered on witnessing to Jesus and serving Jesus. And that happens as a result of faith in Jesus. So that's what we receive. We receive a new identity. Okay, what else do we receive? Repentance. Repentance is a gift. Repentance is not something that's natural to us. We do not naturally repent of our sins before God. We do not naturally turn from the darkness to the light. And you would think, why would we not do that? Because the darkness is comfortable to us. You know, for, for someone who is comfortable in the dark, when you turn that light on, your, your eyes are, you know, uh, just affected immediately by the light. And so that's, that's exactly what happens to us on the inside. So we don't naturally want to repent. Repentance is a gift. Notice what he says here. As you're preaching to the Jews and to the Gentiles, you're preaching to open their eyes so that they may turn, so that they may turn from darkness to light. Through Jesus, we are granted the gift of repentance, meaning in him, we can turn from our sin. We can turn from our idols. We can turn to God. You see, this is where true reconciliation happens. We can truly be reconciled to a right relationship with God through what Jesus has done. This is a part of the new work that God is doing. We can repent now and turn to Jesus, okay? The third thing we see, deliverance. Deliverance. What, what else? He says, to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. You see, although we were trapped in spiritual darkness through his death and resurrection, Jesus has brought us into the light of his kingdom. So the sin that has such a powerful grip on our lives, part of the new work that God has done through Jesus is that that power is released. We are set free from the shackles of sin. It no longer has power over our lives. Satan has no power over your life. This is what Jesus has set us free from. And Paul, he writes about this in the book of Colossians, where he said, he, being Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He goes on to say that, that God has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So, so evidences or benefits of the new work that God has done through Jesus. We have a new identity. We, we have repentance. We're delivered from the power of sin and the power of Satan to God. And then we also see forgiveness. He says, I'm sending you to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. When you come to faith in Jesus, your sins are forgiven. Isn't that so hard for us to embrace? It's hard, it's hard to embrace forgiveness when you, when you wrong another person, isn't it? You do something that's truly wrong, and it's out in the open, it's clear, and, you, and you've, you've done them wrong. And then you go and do what you should do, and you apologize. You confess, and you repent. And things just don't feel right between you and the other person, but you have come, you've laid your heart out, and you have asked for their forgiveness. And you want nothing more than their forgiveness. Then they forgive you. And it still feels weird. It's, you still feel guilty. Guilt is so powerful. It's so hard to release. And so when you think about a sovereign, eternal, holy, perfect God 
who says your sins are forgiven, it is difficult for some of us to embrace that because we continue to sin and we, we hold on to that guilt so much. And so our relationship with the Lord is, is not usually joyful because we're holding on to our guilt. Listen to me. Because Jesus died and rose again. This isn't something you have done. You have not contributed anything. God wanted to do this. He acted freely in history and he has done a new work. And this is a new creation where you stand as someone who is forgiven in Jesus. God has forgiven you of all your past sins. He has forgiven you. Though we were guilty, Jesus' death in our place grants us forgiveness of sins before God. It's a beautiful gift that we receive through Jesus. And there's one more thing we see here, acceptance. And I think in our day and age, more people want to be accepted and want to belong than anything else. That might be the highest value. If it's not attention, we like attention too. If it's not attention, it's belonging. We want to belong. We want to be accepted. This is a gift that's given to us. Look what he says. All right, I'm sending you to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins. And what? This is the most controversial when Paul spoke this at this time, in this context. And a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. What he's saying is through Jesus, through this new work, through this new creation, God has created a new people. And the basis for belonging in that new people is Jesus. And so if you're a Jew and you come to faith in Jesus, you belong to, to God's people. And if you're a Gentile and you come to faith in Jesus, you belong to God's people. And so everyone in this room, regardless of your background, re regardless of where you come from, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of any other social factor or cultural factor, if you have come to faith in Jesus... You belong with everyone else in here who has come to faith in Jesus, and faith in Jesus is the basis. That's why whenever we do membership interviews, we want to hear your testimony. We want to hear how you came to faith in Jesus because that is how you enter the people of God is by coming to faith in Jesus. And this is so beautiful because even though we were once enemies of God, alienated from his promises and from his people, we have been made in Christ to be children of God. And we've been made to be heirs to his promises. And through the work of Jesus, we have a place to belong, a family to enjoy, and an inheritance of eternal joy and blessing to anticipate. So what is the new work that God has done in the world? This is the essence of Christianity. It's that in time, God has saved sinners through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And through that work, a new creation has happened in every single person who comes to faith in him. We have been given a new identity. We've been granted repentance. We have been delivered from the power of sin and Satan. We have been forgiven of our sins, and we have been accepted and welcomed into the family of God. That's what God has done. Now, there are two ways to respond to this. And what's so amazing about this passage is that Paul responded in both ways. He responded in both ways. And the examples are so extreme, we can actually find ourselves somewhere under both umbrellas. So let's, let's think about it for just a second. And, and we need to remember this. We don't bring anything to contribute to this new work. But since Jesus' death and resurrection means that he is the Messiah, and that he is the new Adam, and that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, there are only two ways we can respond to what he has done and what he is doing. And these responses are not just one-time decisions. 
If you're not a Christian in this room, I, what I'm not saying to you is that you have to make that decision today and it's the last time you'll ever have to make that decision. Or if you are a believer in this room and you're tempted to tune out now because you're like, oh, I've already, I've already responded the way I'm supposed to. I'm good. No, these, are, these responses are daily choices for us. How we're going to respond to the work that God has done in Jesus and is doing in Jesus through our lives. Okay, so, so t- two ways. We can either resist or we can submit. So response one, resistance. Um, this is, was how Paul was living before he met the risen Jesus. And this is how we were all living before we met the risen Jesus. And this is how we're tempted to live every single day, resisting what God is doing in our lives. So look back to verse 9 of chapter 26. As he's given this speech, he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, But when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul was resisting the new work of Jesus by persecuting his people. And so when Jesus appeared to Paul, he rebuked him. And this rebuke is really famous. Most of us could probably, you know, just state it from memory. We, we know what was one part of that rebuke? Saul, Saul, what is it? Why are you persecuting me? Yeah, yeah, y'all got it. Why are you persecuting me? That's, that's the most famous part of it, and we have that again here. And, and that's how Paul tells it. That's how Luke records it earlier in Acts. But in this third telling of Paul's conversion, he shares a new rebuke from Jesus that we hadn't, we hadn't heard before. And I think it's really important to what Paul is doing in this speech to consider. So let's look at it really carefully. Look at verse 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. So if you remember, Paul's going to Damascus to do exactly what he'd been doing all along, to persecute Christians. And then he testifies, At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. See, what Paul's doing in this speech is he's putting a spotlight on the new work of God to save sinners through Jesus. He wants his hearers to see that God has come down and he has acted decisively in history to set all things right. And so he he isn't just a Pharisee gone rogue. He is a witness of what God has done and is doing, just like so many of the prophets would do long ago. But, But it's important for everyone to see that Paul wasn't always this way. He wasn't, you know, just a Pharisee in the past. He was a violent opponent of the church that he now promotes. And he believed that Jesus was a fraud and that his followers were blasphemers. But he was dead wrong. And he didn't realize it until Jesus appeared to him. And when the risen Jesus appeared to him, he told Paul what was really going on. He says, it is hard for you to kick against the goats. 
Now, this is not a metaphor I'm overly familiar with. It's an agricultural metaphor. It, it paints a picture of livestock, you know, resisting the plow, kicking back against the farmer as he's, as he's pushing him forward. Um, the metaphor is usually used to, to talk about obstinate or stubborn people. You know, I'm going to start using it now. You know, my kids, we have three kids, and all three of them, they kick against the goads all the time, you know. That's what I'm going to start saying now. It is hard for you to kick against the goads, you know, and see how far that gets me. Um, uh, but but that's, that's usually, you know, how this, how this phrase is used. You've been told to do something, and you're just kind of stubbing up, and you're, you're, you know, rebelling against it. And so it's like, you quit kicking against the goads. Just, just do what you were told. Well, the issue here is that Paul hasn't been told anything. He wasn't given a command to which he was directly disobeying. So what's, what's this in reference to? What, what, what does kicking against the goads look like for Paul? Well, he's persecuting Christians. Um, Paul is kicking against the goads of God's new work. It's, it's, it's much bigger than, than the way we typically use that, that metaphor. He's kicking against the goads of God's new work through Jesus. But, but Jesus says this is hard for you to do. Paul's resistance cannot stop this new work from continuing. And, and how is he kicking against the goads? He's killing Christians. Well, he's, he's killing these Christians, which should stomp out the movement, right? That's why the Jews wanted to do this. We could stomp out the movement. Let's just get rid of them. We'll force them to denounce their faith, and if they don't do that, we'll execute them. And then we won't have to deal with this anymore, and the faith will be done. And what's happening? It's multiplying like, rap, like, like wildfire. I mean, it's not stopping. It continues to spread. And despite the intense persecution, it continues to spread. And Paul is, or Jesus is telling Paul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. You are kicking against the goads, but it is impossible for you to stop the new work that God is doing in the world. And so he's faced with a decision. You know, of course, before our conversion, we are resisting the work of God in Christ through unbelief. But, but even after we first believe, we still kick against the goads. Our stubbornness, unfortunately, hasn't been sanctified out of us yet. And we have a tendency to resist the work of God in our lives. Now, this doesn't mean we're not really followers of Jesus. It just means that sometimes we become walking contradictions of what we believe. We believe all of these things, and then our lives do not align with them. What does it look like for us to kick against the goads? Hopefully you're not persecuting Christians. Um, that would be an obvious example. Um, but what are some, what are some more uh, tangible examples of kicking against the goads of Christ's new work in us? Well, let's, let's think about the, the various elements and benefits of the new work of Jesus. So instead of embracing our new identity that we've been given as witnesses, as servants, as sent ones of Jesus— how do we kick against the goads? We become apathetic toward disciple-making. We become cold to evangelism. We wake up one day and we're like, I never talk about Jesus, ever. And I'm kicking against the goads. I'm resisting my new identity as someone who has been sent to testify about Jesus, and I refuse to invite people to church. I don't know why I don't do it. I just don't do it. We're, we're kicking against the goads. Instead of living as a witness and servant, we just shrug our shoulders at the gospel's advance through us. And we don't tell people about Jesus. What's another way it looks like? Well, instead of living a life of repentance, 
this gift that we've been granted, this new disposition that we have before God where we, where we confess and turn from our sins and trust him, which becomes an ongoing practice for a Christian throughout his or her life. No, instead of that, we just become comfortable with sin. We're comfortable with it. As Avery was talking about earlier, presumptuous sins. We sin sometimes because we're like, ah, you know, I probably should work on this. I probably shouldn't do this. But God's so gracious. He loves me. His love's never going to leave. He will never forsake me. So is it really that important for me to put this sin to death? Do you know what's happening there? You're not just doing something you shouldn't do. You're kicking against the goads of God's new work in you. You are resisting. You are resisting what God wants to do in you to sanctify you, to, to shape and form you into the image of his son. You are beating against that. Okay? Uh, another example. Instead of embracing forgiveness from God, instead of extending forgiveness to others, we live guilt-ridden lives. We're bitter and judgmental toward other people. You know, if, if the culture of our church became one where we were judgmental and harsh and unkind toward one another, it would be the biggest disgrace Ever. I can't imagine anything more tragic and anything more sad than a church that proclaims the gospel the way that we do to have a church culture where we are unkind, ungracious, unloving, unwelcoming to other people. And if, if we are doing that in our lives, if we just refuse to extend forgiveness to someone, if we refuse to love other people and to be gracious, then we're kicking against the goads. We're not just doing something we shouldn't do. We're kicking against the goads. We are working, we're resisting God's work in us because he's trying to form and shape us into people who are gentle and who are kind and who are humble and who are merciful and who serve one another. That's who he's making us into. When we resist that, we're not just resisting something that's good for us, we're resisting the work of Jesus and denying what he has done on the cross in practice. And one last thing from our examples here. Instead of embracing and extending acceptance and belonging, we're cold with other people, or we isolate ourselves, or we make something other than the gospel the main thing for our acceptance in the body of Christ. When you do this, you are kicking against the goats. You're resisting the work of Jesus in your heart and in our church. So, so that's one way you can respond. You can resist. You can resist what Jesus has done on the cross. You can resist what that means for your life now. You can resist the reality that if you've trusted in Jesus, you have been raised with Jesus and you have a new life in him. Or, and Paul did that, by the way. He did that. Or, the second response, we can submit. We can submit. We can embrace the mission of God. We can, we can embrace what he has done and what he is doing in the world. And we find that starting in verse 19. Look with me, Acts 26, verse 19. I love how Paul defends himself here. I love it. It's so simple. It's so clear. He says, therefore, O King Agrippa, after he tells him what Jesus told him to do, he says, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Isn't that beautiful? Just that, it's just that simple. Jesus told me to, to do these things, and I have not been disobedient to it. That's why they're all mad at me. That's why I'm in chains, because I have not been disobedient to the call of Jesus on my life, which shows us Paul stopped resisting. 
He stopped kicking against the goads and instead fully embraced the new work of God in his life and in the world. He fully embraced it. He fully submitted to Jesus as his Lord and as his Savior. He goes on to say in verse 20, but I declared first to those in Damascus. Don't you love that too? Immediately, he was going to Damascus to kill Christians and he's like, the first place that I started living for the glory of Jesus was in Damascus. And this is then in Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and then also to all the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. And he says, it's for this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. And to this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light, both to our people and to the Gentiles. When Paul met Jesus, he stopped resisting. He stopped resisting God's new work, and he fully embraced it. He fully got on board. He totally submitted. And overnight, the church's fiercest enemy became her most passionate witness. And that's not something that's just relegated to the pages of Scripture and and just an inspiring story like, wow, that's great for Paul. That's not true for me. No. The same source of power that he had for his life to change so dramatically is the same source that we have. The death and resurrection of Jesus, the new work of God in our lives. Paul's life from that moment forward was lived to promote and advance the gospel. His life started to align with the work of Jesus in the world, which is why he confesses to Agrippa that all he's guilty of is obedience to the risen Jesus. Now, this should be the trajectory of every single Christian in this room. Our lives should constantly be conforming and calibrating to the new work of God in Christ. I don't know how many of you remember smart boards. Do you remember smart boards in school? Anybody here? People, people around my age probably do. They were short-lived. I don't even know if they still use them anymore. Um, but smart boards were the coolest thing ever. You know, it was like a whiteboard, but it was electronic, you know, and so you could take these little markers and you could mark on them. But the problem with those things is they constantly had to be recalibrated. You constantly had to, and they put the screen up and you had to take the, the marker and touch this dot right in the middle and it would always be off. And it, that was the biggest problem with them because you'd start writing something down here and the words are like, you know, going up here on the top and that you constantly had to recalibrate. And that is, that is our life in Christ. We constantly need to recalibrate our lives so that they are aligned with the work that God is doing in us. He desires repentance from us. We need to recalibrate our hearts so that our disposition to our sin is not comfort, but repentance. He desires for us to be witnesses and servants of him. We are prone to be selfish and to serve ourselves. We need to recalibrate our hearts so that we are focused and centered on him. We're prone not to receive and not to extend forgiveness. Our hearts need recalibrated. Every single week when we gather for worship, this is a recalibration exercise as we are setting our minds and our hearts on the risen Jesus so that our lives will start to align with him. So what does it look like to embrace God's mission? Live as a witness and a servant. Seek ways to do that in your life. Put sin to death. Sin is not something that we should be comfortable with. We put it to death. We confess it. We repent of it. Forgive as you have been forgiven. Accept others as you have been accepted. Again, the death and resurrection of Jesus is the basis for all of this. We have new motivation for lives lived to God's glory. It's the new work that God is doing in us. So church, let's stop resisting. 
Let's stop resisting what God has done and what he is doing through Jesus. Let's get on board fully. Let's embrace and let's obey. You know, I'll never forget two basketball coaches in my life. One was my dad. One was my high school coach. And um, they, they dealt with resistance from players in a really specific way. Because if you've ever been around athletes, we, resi- we resist. We resist things all the time. We complain we, and we, we just resist. And, and coaches are really great about having a system or a program or good coaches. Good coaches have a program. They have a system that they believe in, that they believe works, that they believe is best. Players are prone to resist the parts of that system that they don't like whether it's, you know, a training regiment, whether it's, a, you know, an offensive scheme in basketball or a defensive scheme, whatever it is. But both of those coaches that I had, they basically had the same mantra when it came to players who would resist. And it was, you see that door? That door swings both ways. <laughs> and both of them had that, and that was their disposition. It, and basically what they were saying through that is, I'm not changing the program to meet your needs or preferences. The program is the program. We do things this way. If you don't like it, the door swings both ways. As easily as you came in, you can go back out, but the program is not changing. Now, that's not a perfect analogy. Life in the kingdom isn't quite like that. But when it comes to the new work of God through Jesus, you really only have two options. You can resist or you can submit. You can't change it. It's not changing. It is hard to kick against the goads because Jesus is at the plow and he is moving forward with his work in this world. So we can rebel or we can get on board with God's mission in the world. No amount of resistance from you or from me can stop God from rescuing sinners and restoring all things through Jesus. The question for us today and every day is will we be with God on mission or will we be against him? Let's be with him. Let me pray for us.